Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is Better Make It Quick. This is the quick Wednesday throwback episode that Bree, my producer and researcher here, has gone back through the back catalogue and gone, this is an episode people should listen to again. And so here we are. This is a shorter version of a longer conversation, which you can find at episode 25. Double figures. Holy moly. Charlie Pickering was my guest on that day. He's been on Australian TV screens for nearly 20 years. Charlie's a comedian, a radio and TV presenter. He's an author. He's a producer. He's a dad. He hosted The Project on Network 10 for a long time, about 10 years. He now hosts The Weekly, uh, which is weekly on the ABC. He was the Gen X team captain on Talking About Your Generation. I do believe he's returning to Australian screens this year in Would I Lie to You? Now, Charlie Pickering first came on the podcast in 20. 14, I think. He was a 25th guest. We sat down in his beautiful house in Melbourne. His dogs ran around her feet. It was a lovely day. Charlie, at the time, was the host of The Project, which is a nightly news panel show in Australia. And I was saying to him that it was quite refreshing to have a program that didn't breed fear like most of The Project's competitors at the time. If you look at the history of television, someone figured out probably in the 70s. I I think it really started to happen in the 70s that fear was a very powerful motivator. And, and that was during the Cold War. So you could do stuff like what would happen in the event of a nuclear war? And you would just get scientists on to say, if nuclear war happened, England would be destroyed in an hour and half of the American population would die. And, and, and it turned out the more you talked about that, the more people watched it because they were just scared. And they, it triggers survival things in your brain. You think, oh, I need to know all of this stuff if I'm going to be okay. But it's gotten so ludicrous now that it doesn't matter if some guy was a dodgy fridge repairman. It just doesn't matter. That's between the guy whose fridge it was and the repairman. Like, I have things in my life that don't go perfectly. I don't think I deserve a national TV audience to sort them out for me. And I also think it's not helpful to anyone to make them scared of things they don't need to be scared of. What I think is great, and and I think we benefit from this, is we're also entering the age of big data. So a lot of the wild accusations and things that pushed fear points and triggered triggers within people, we've now got enough information and, an, and enough computing power to process that information to go, 
Well, actually, that's not accurate. You know, what what we do know is that some, there's been a decline of something like 70 or 80% in kids riding their bikes or walking to school since you and I were kids. That's coincided with a massive leap in obesity in children, and there's no coincidence there. But the rate of attacks on children hasn't gone up. Children are just as safe as they ever were walking to school or riding a bike to school. In fact, threats to your children come from within the home by an overwhelming percentage. Within the family, within the community, yeah. We now have all of the data that says that. So what we actually have to start doing, we've got a responsibility to say, do you know what? You, you've actually got to weigh up some statistics now. Rather than just going, oh, that makes me feel scared, weigh up some data and make some informed decisions. But it's the hardest thing in the world to start trying to, I don't know, start trying to perpetuate informed decision-making rather than gut. It's a very difficult thing, you know, and we try to do that. We, we do try to do that. And it's a, it's a great place to stand when making a, a television show. And I, I definitely want to talk about that because we, we will get to that. But as I was getting ready for this, I was looking into you and your background. You were the guy I was afraid of when I was 18 because you were smarter, you were faster, and you were you were at university and I wasn't. And I'm like, I was I would have been too afraid to talk to you when I was at, when I was eighteen because I would I would have felt completely outgunned. Well, okay. So you were the guy that I was intimidated with when I was eighteen. You How? were like you, you well I'm not what I looked like when I was eighteen. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. Well well I didn't know you then, but I knew you I like I've known you for quite a while now. Yeah. And you were you were lovely from day one. I will say that from the first moment I met you. Maybe that was the fear you're talking about, but you were lovely from day one. But no, I was I wasn't as developed as everyone around me. I, I like skipped a grade back at school, and I was and I was just smaller. I was just smaller and skipped a grade ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So and you graduated, and you were a year younger than everybody yeah, else. I, I was. I had just turned seventeen when I finished school, and was at, I was at uni. I was seventeen, so I didn't. Fake ID was a necessity yeah. for a social life. And so a lot of the things that came along for most people then and about growing up and moving on, I had to wait a bit for. But I was also smaller than everyone. I went through puberty later than everyone in my class. And we'll talk about that. That was enough. Like that was difficult enough in itself. You can't control biology, but. Well, okay, is, let's, let's talk about that. Okay, it, cool. In the, the great Gladwell book, Outliers, he argues a very strong case for keeping your kids back and letting them start later so they're bigger and older than everybody else because the kids who are bigger get more opportunities in school. And he goes through this whole diagram of all the NHL players who are, you know, they're all born within three months of the school year's intake because yeah. they're the they're the largest ones in the class. And I remember when I first got around my first bunch of Ivy League people, I'm like, you're all six foot five and devastatingly good looking. Yeah. Because they were the tallest, best looking ones. And being the other guy in the class must have been really hard. Yeah. Not saying that you weren't great and handsome. But, <laughs> but no, but I was, I, was a, I was small. And so I evolved for a bunch of reasons. I evolved a sense of humor. That's a survival mechanism. And it was also an edge. Like if I was quicker at making a joke than everyone around me, that maybe gave me a chance to own a bit of territory. You know, like there, there was a little bit of territory there, like I could, although it got me into as much trouble as it solved. But I, it depends what you're trying to achieve as far as starting your kids early and skipping grades. And I know my parents agonized over it. Like, you know, like it was really difficult. But, but it came from a place that I was misbehaving a lot at school and I was, okay, that's my dog jumping up there. Uh, dogs, that's Kennedy, dogs are always Kennedy welcome. the Scottish Terrier jumping up there. I misbehaved. Like I had a detention in grade four, which had never happened in my school before, but it was I was bored out of my mind. Like I was just bored. And I also knew, well, I'm bored, so I'm just going to crack jokes. I'm just going to 
start little shows in the corner of the classroom because that's what's important to me. And that is not fair on everyone else in the class, as my teachers rightly well, when you're nine, When you're eight, it doesn't... You don't have a concept of that. No. Like, you don't. And it's only now, that's probably the first time I've ever realised that was the problem with being the class clown is everyone deserves an education, you know? So you you it's maybe not the best idea to get in everyone's way. But there was a necessity there. It was a behavioural necessity to, that needed to be solved. And eventually it was solved, I think, more by changing schools than than by skipping a grade because I skipped a grade. So you went from four to six? I went from four to six. Wow. And I was just as bored, played up just as much and was in trouble just as much. And if anything, by quirk of fate, I had a teacher who I related to less than my grade four teacher and we were at war. Yeah, like we were, we were at war for that whole year. Charlie and I eventually got talking to how important education is, not just necessarily tertiary education, but also to go out into the world, learn and meet people and look at people different from you and look at how they do things. Because it helps to take away fear, the fear that he and I were speaking about earlier. Through life and through my career, fear is kind of, fear is the thing I think about the most. Right. And I think that's life and I think that's creativity and, and all of those things. When you give in to fear, you lower your expectations. Yeah. And when you let fear guide what you do too much, what you end up doing is more compromised and it's less appealing and it's less satisfying. My meditation teacher tells me that when we live in fear, and I used to live in, my entire life was driven by fear. When we live in fear, we leave ourselves with extreme polarized choices. That's it. Fight or flight. Yeah, the sky's going to fall, or I have to get the hell out of here. That, yeah. that's it. But if we can release ourselves from fear, there's an enormous range of options available to us. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, if we live in fear, that's it. We see it. But but the the, the amazing thing is, like, the more you go through life, you realise that all decisions are nowhere near as binary as you first think they are. Exactly. And. And life ends up happening. Like, you know, all of the great opportunities of your life, the greatest opportunities of, of your life. Like, okay, my current job, which is brilliant. Love my current job. But there's still days where I get angry about how we do a story or like, I'm, you know what, there's some weeks where I'm just exhausted at the end of it. I love my job, but, you know, there are days where I go, God, I wish I was out just doing stand-up, just on the road doing stand-up because uh, there's so much less pressure on it. I don't have to deal with a network, like all of those sorts of things. And just in that, you go, all right, I got offered this job and I was going, wow, that's the most money I'm ever go- ever going to make. This is the best possible job in the world. But the moment you do it, you go, oh, actually, the, you know, nothing's perfect up close. And it's the same with bad outcomes. When something bad happens and you have to deal with it, it's never quite as bad as you imagine it's going to be. Never. You know, and, and the world is a gray area. Everything is a gray area. If it was that simple, governments would be perfect and we'd have no deficits and there'd be no war, yeah. right? But everything is a fucking gray area. So you have to get used to that and get comfortable with it, Yeah, you know? And within that gray area, you try to pick which things you are resolute about. Which are the things that are so important that you go, do you know what? I want to lift that up out of the gray area and put that somewhere somewhere special. I want to elevate that. And, and you've got to pick those things. Hmm. rather than always making this binary choice. So when you were at school and then you were being more challenged by this kind of more structured environment, did the, did the class clowning and either you were really good with your toes or no, someone's licking my hands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that is Kennedy. That's, uh, that's no members of my family. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, when you got to the end of school and, and, and you went to university, I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't many people like you in school, that you were the, 
you were the one or you're of a minority of the kid that was that smart and that funny? Um, I don't know. Well, I was really lucky. I had this amazing group of friends at school. Yeah, right. Which, as it turns out, I haven't stayed in contact with that much. That's been a bit just the way I dedicate myself okay. to work. But that's 20 people. years, man. That's all right. Yeah. But I had a group of friends that all shared a sense of humor. Like, we would sit around at lunchtime just cracking jokes. We weren't of any clique. Like, we were not the jocks. We were not like the rich, good looking ones. We weren't the nerds. Like, we were just our own thing and we kind of ran separately to all of the other dynamics that were going on. No one hated us. Occasionally, I'd end up having a fight with one of the jocks who was being a fuckhead and there had to be a fight, you know, or I'd get bullied, you know, and there was bullying that went on through school. But just what I consider to be a natural amount of bullying, nothing too extreme, nothing. I I think I was fortunate that I always had this, I always had a certain confidence that would mean the bullying never really got through to me. I'd kind of see it for what it was. But even that was a conscious choice. Like, I've just always felt like everyone's kind of more in control than they think they are a lot of the time. And it's like, you know, the people that you envy or the people that that things seem to go really well for them or have done things that you wish you could do or or whatever they are. There's a number of things they have in common. I, I now understand that the one thing everyone that succeeds has in common is they work harder than everyone else. That's true. When you're a kid, you don't get that. Ah, Kennedy. I'm protected. I feel so protected. Yeah, she's she's a vicious beast, vicious terrier. But one one thing I figured out early was, and it's purely a logical uh, an exercise of logic, is you'll never achieve everything if you don't believe you can. Like if you don't believe it's possible, at least, or that you could do it. And that's the other thing that like everyone that does something good believed they could do it or believed in it enough to try. Mm-hmm. And from there, I kind of developed little mantras for myself, which are, you know, like never be intimidated by anyone. You had that as a teenager? Yeah. I wow, kind of started yeah. when, I, when I was a teenager because it just occurred to me that like what good comes from being intimidated? Like, do you know what I mean? Like how, how can you properly deal with difficult situations if you're overwhelmed by them or, or if you, you know... But you had that as a teenager is like amazing and a superpower. I've only come to realize that in the last two or three years. Yeah. I'm, That's an absolute superpower. Or I was the most arrogant kid ever. I don't know. But I, I don't think I was, I was never arrogant. I just kind of made a bunch of decisions which were like, nah, fuck it. You get one crack at this. So let's, let's just try and cool. let's just try and weed out the dumb stuff. That, that's all it was. And, but then I developed an amazing knack for other dumb stuff that would get me into trouble and, and that would cause me difficulty. But even that has worked out over time that what I was doing was filtering out the things that mm. the things that I like and am passionate about from the things that I'm not. And it turns out that if I can get rid of more of the things that I'm not passionate about and focus on the things that I am passionate about, things tend to go a lot better. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Like so many fantastic comedians before him, Charlie Pickering got his start in comedy by going to law school. Who knew law school would be the thing? But I wanted to know, why did Charlie choose to go to law school in the first place? Law was a cover for getting on stage. Ah. The other thing I knew was that Monty Python, they all started out doing shows at university. Footlights, yeah. Yeah. Clive James started at Footlights. Like all my, like a lot of my Fry heroes. Laurie. Fry and Laurie. A lot of my heroes British universities started doing comedy there. And also in Australia, Degeneration, Steve Visard started doing stuff at law school. Like, you know, there was a a long line of people who used that opportunity to be creative and get into comedy. And so the moment, literally two weeks into uni, I signed up for the law review and I I went and auditioned and all the kids were like, they were all like five years older than me. And I was like young. And there was a sense like when I rocked up to the audition there was a little bit of a, okay, all right. You know, like I was a bit young. I rocked up with shit that I'd written, gave them, like I gave them scripts and then I was like, all right, what do you want, what do you want me to do? And I, I was like some kind of idiot savant. Like I'd studied, just as I'd studied to get into uni, I'd been studying comedy to know all the words to everything ever and, and I'd written some other, written this stuff myself and, and so I was, I arrived and I was like, the fact that I'm young hasn't stopped me ever before. It's not going to stop me now. Turns out I care more about this than anyone in the room, if you know what I mean. Like, and, and I just had that attitude. And I worked with an amazing bunch of people on that law review. And that was the first, was the first law review I did. I was, I, ended up, I was in four law reviews. My first four years I was in law reviews. And then I directed and produced another three on top of that. Over seven years at uni, I did a, full-scale comedy production every year. Right. And I put more time into that than I did into my education. And and in hindsight, one of my regrets is that I never studied abroad or I didn't get really good grades or anything like that. But the whole time I knew that I was investing in what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So just for folks, I, I'm guessing the Law Review is a show that you put on. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, it's, right. a, it's a show put on at the by the law faculty. It's the Law Student Society put it on. And it's like you spend fucking months writing it and rehearsing it. And it's a lot of drinking and smoking joints and laughing and you know like there's a social aspect to it but it feels cool how like many when nights you, do you do you end up doing two weeks of six nights a week so you do 12 shows and, and right. which is a proper run a big room well yeah that year the guys that were running it and they'll feature <laughs> like the, i i kept working with them for quite a while they were similar to me they wanted to do this for a living so they took the producing of it really seriously and i learned from them how to produce so the smallest audience I performed to was 200 people, like at uni, which once you start doing comedy festivals on your own, 200 people is like proper acts performed to 200 people a night. So we were, you know, we we're playing big rooms and we produced it well. And it was funny, the guys that I'd done plays with at school that did the tech, they came in and they were my tech guys and they did the lighting sound for the shows. 
and they ended up doing lighting and sound for all of those shows and then did lighting and sound for my first few comedy festival shows. Like, you know, there was a real team that mm. started to put together with this and, and an attitude of we're building a business, you know, like the, we're building something that's going to have to operate outside the rarefied environment of the a, a university at some point. But the great thing about Law Reviews was you didn't have to be that funny to be fucking hilarious. Like... You could do jokes about fucking law cases that everyone had studied and people would laugh their asses off. You try and do that in the real world and people will hate you so much and it will be dreadful. But it's that's all just about knowing your audience. And we had a great home ground advantage for, you know, for five years or so at law school, playing to people that, you know, your experience was identical to their experience. You knew what they knew and there was stuff to talk about. But we were always pushing to write things that could work just in the real world outside that. And so you graduated. Did you ever actually, do you pass the bar? Did you practice as a lawyer? I finished and I graduated and I got, I got articles in a big law firm. It was the big firm that I wanted to work in. If I was a lawyer, it was where I wanted to be. And I worked for a week and I left. I, hang on, that's the dogs chasing something. I, um, I was there for a week and I spent the week, as I said, I'm competitive. And so I was there going, all right, so what does success look like in this environment? I'm like, oh, well, it's the senior partners, the guys in the corner offices. Awesome. And I looked at them and none of them were happy. All of them hated their jobs. They were all like 40 kilos overweight, barely knew their wives, could barely remember the names of their kids. And you know, when you start at a job, you try and get in first to impress people and you try to leave last to impress people. They were always already in before I got there. And they were always still there when I left. And I was just like, why work up to anything if you're going to, Work those hours and hate it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Like money can't be that great. And it's not money. Like, you know, like nothing is worth that. Like I, I genuinely feel that. If you love it, fine. You can work around the clock doing it. That's your prerogative. But like I was sitting there going, do you know what? I know that this is never going to make me happy. Like I just, I just had this really clear moment on the Friday. I just said, this is never going to make me happy. 
And so then I thought, well, I've got to go. Like the logical next step is if this is never going to make me happy, it is foolish to remain another another minute. So I went to the HR department. I said, look, I never really traveled while I was at uni. I didn't take a year off before starting here. And I, I'm starting to think I missed out. I'm feeling a bit burnt out after uni. So can I actually defer for a year and come back in a year's time? And they said, fine, that, that's good. They were very supportive. That was kind of a done thing. But this is a firm that would, like they'd recruit like 30 kids out of uni a year. Like the firm did not rely on me in any way. Yeah, right. You know? And I did not travel. I just pursued comedy. To hear the full conversation between Charlie and I, go back to episode 25. Yeah, 25. Better than yesterday. It's all the way back. It had the old theme song. There's metal involved. There's guitars. You're going to have to imagine your own pyrotechnic spectacular. Charlie's a fantastic man. Brilliant fella. He's on Instagram, Charlie Pick, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-I-C-K. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Andy Marr, who did post-production on this, and Bree Steele, who produced this episode, and Rachel Barrett, who executive produces everything. I'll see you on Friday. 